In by Doan, on the VLL's touch, and there's Davis. Oh, they've done it! What a story! Added time, and Steve Davis has levelled here to send Rochdale to Wembley. That was the high point of Rochdale Football Club's recent life, when in the 93rd minute against Tottenham Hotspur, they got an equaliser in the FA Cup. They forced a replay in the fifth round. This weekend, we published a fascinating long read by Jack Wilson about an attempt to take over the club. Outside investors coming in, buying bits of shares from fans to try and force a takeover. But the story was really about what happens when investors come in and the fans don't want them. When a team like Rochdale, with passionate fans who want to defend their club, becomes a battleground over ownership and over finance. That is the subject of this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. I'm here with Danny Cole in our studio in Media City and we are going to be talking about Rochdale, we're going to be talking about lower league football, we're going to be talking about Danny's first year at the Mill. There's going to be a few other stories on the running order as well. Danny, how's it going? Yeah, it's going, it's going good. It was about a year ago. Danny joined as our first ever staff writer. So we're going to, later on, we're going to be talking about Danny's favourite stories since she joined the mill. We're going to be talking to Jack Walton about his story about Rochdale. And we're also, aren't we, Danny, going to be hearing from Jack Dalhanty? Yes, we are. We've got a lovely dispatch from Jack later on. What's he been up to? So earlier today, he went off and visited Mustard Tree and was able to sit in on an English lesson. So it was an English as a foreign language lesson and he recorded a lovely report from there. Brilliant. You've also been meeting a, a man who's just hung up his boots at an interesting sort of classical music ensemble as well, haven't you? Yes, so Tim Williams is the artistic director of music ensemble Safa. He has not quite hung up his boots yet. He will be later on this year, but there'll be one sort of final swan song concert before he goes out. This is a football-themed episode, and we're going to be speaking to Jack first. Okay, Jack Walton has kindly appeared in our studio and he's going to talk to us about his brilliant long read this weekend about Rochdale Football Club. Association Football Club, isn't it? That is correct and it's uh, nice to be here. Good. Well, welcome. Welcome, Jack. So, first of all, how did you get onto this story? This story actually came about through a reader of the mill, a long-time reader, I think, a woman named Claire Flett. She actually runs a publication up in Rochdale called Rochdale Online. Mm. I think she saw that I'd done a little piece for uh, one of our newsletters about the situation going on at Oldham Athletic, another club with uh, a battle against their ownership, more of a long-running battle there. Mm. And uh, she pointed out to us that uh, the situation at Rochdale could be uh, worth some coverage. So I took a look and, yeah, it was was a fascinating story to work on. Because you've been writing about Oldham quite a bit, haven't you? Not for us, but for the local paper. So what's the kind of, what was the contrast she was drawing between Oldham and Rochdale in terms of their football ownership? Well, I mean, they're both stories of bad owners. I mean, that's the common thread between the two. I mean, in uh, Oldham's case, as you say, I've been covering them for uh, the Oldham Evening Chronicle up there. They've been battling against their ownership, uh, a man named Abdallah Lemzigan and his brother Mohammed, who is the sporting director, since 2018. And that's sort of like a a long-running saga, underinvestment, unpaid wages, transfer embargoes, all of that stuff. And um, in a sense, you could argue that uh, Rochdale were looking across the few miles between those two towns and thinking if these owners who uh, want to purchase our club are 
anything like the characters that Oldham have got on their hands, then we could be in real trouble here. And, and perhaps that's part of what alarmed them so much and um, what made them take action against this proposed takeover. So, Jack, so you were interviewing people in pubs, you went along to, to some games. Could you just talk us through the process, sort of how you went and investigated this story? Yeah, after I spoke to Claire, I started getting in touch with uh, a few of the fans who were involved in this mobilisation, I guess you could call it, against this takeover. And um, I guess you could say at first a few of them were a little bit cagey. A few of them were even concerned, I think, that I had been sent on behalf of uh, <laughs> Morton House. The, uh, the how, com- how did you prove that you were legit? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I think I think I just won them over time. I think I might have showed them a couple of old articles. I think I, I probably would have said that uh, had I been a, a spy sent on behalf of Morton House, it would have been quite a, a roundabout way to go about things <laughs> to write a series of articles to prove my legitimacy. <laughs> so I was able to speak to um, many fans in the bar in the, in the clubhouse before the match. And yeah, it was it was a similar story between all of them. Really, they all felt the same way, and um, the way they mobilised uh, was a really quite an impressive thing. So you started your piece in April last year. A Rolls Royce turns up at the stadium and you say it looked a bit out of place and it belonged to this businessman called Andrew Curran. Tell us about Curran and tell us about this takeover attempt. Yeah, so around about April 2021, the board of directors at that time, which is is now a very different set of characters who are sitting on the board of directors at the minute, which I think is important to stress, but the board of directors at that time were courting for private investment. They believed that that Rochdale Football Club needed an investor to come in and try and help take the club to the next level. That would have been the the way they would have sold it. What level are they at? Uh, So Rochdale are in League Two, uh, which is the fourth tier of the English football pyramid the lowest professional tier and what's really unique about Rochdale as a football club is their fan ownership model which I think is probably something which a lot of other clubs uh, in the lower tiers who have had struggles with their own owners are, are quite jealous of because it's allowed them to remain sustainable where all around them, you know, you see collapse. You see clubs reduced to, to husks of, of what they weren't so old and a former Premier League team could well fall out of the um, EFL. All right, so for people like me who know nothing about football, so we've got we've got investors, we've got a takeover. Who are the people involved in this story? So yeah, they started courting for investors, the board of directors, that is. And this man, Andrew Curran, pulled up in his Rolls Royce and the fans, you know, for what's going on here? Who's this guy? Mm. It sort of emerged over time that Curran, with his business partner, Daryl Rose, through a firm called Morton House, mm. MGT, had been going about approaching shareholders at the club and offering them way over the odds to buy their stakes in the club. Now, these included figures such as David Bottomley, who was on the board of directors, Graham Rawlinson, also uh, on the board of directors. There are uh, two Americans who he also approached, and he built up quite quickly a 43% stake in the club. So that brings us to this great bit in your piece, and I'm going to quote it, in a dimly lit upstairs function room (laughs) at the Cemetery Hotel on Berry Road, 12 fans who would later be affectionately dubbed the infamous 12 or the Rottweilers Mm. gathered to discuss the board's proposal. So how did the fans organise themselves? So yeah, what they were mobilising against was this proposed share issue of 700,000 new shares proposed to be handed out by the board of directors and existing shareholders were not given first refusal. So essentially, uh, what that means in layman's terms is they were asking for permission to sell the club to whoever they saw fit. And the fans, naturally, 
were pretty concerned by this. So this group of 12 diehard Rochdalians mm. gathered, this is during coronavirus, so they had to sit upstairs in, 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 in the pub. <laughs> they gathered and they, they were pretty concerned and they realised that the only way that they could prevent this from happening would be to vote down the proposal at the EGM mm. taking place in June. And so there was only 50 people allowed in the room on the night, which meant that they wouldn't have enough votes. So what they had to do was they had to go around and find all the existing smaller shareholders on the books which they found through a list from Company's House. And yeah, there's a bit in your piece where he was like, it was reams and reams of paper. It was that- reams and reams of paper, yeah. So many shareholders. And these are people that, like, they probably, some of these people they hadn't seen for years. Mm. And they had to go and convince them to vote via proxy, get them to, you know, explain the issue to them and get their permission. And, they, you know, they were tracking people down to the Isle of Arran in, in Scotland. And this, this, this guy that they, they tracked down, he was like, you know, we, we don't have great internet access here, but <laughs> next week I can go into the, use the town's library. They've got internet and I'll, I'll, I'll fill out the, the necessary forms to give you my backing. And it was all these crazy stories like this, driving, you know, miles and miles to knock on people's doors. And eventually they, they got the votes they needed. They won that vote so that the shares couldn't be issued. Morton House were blocked, unable to progress past 43%, so they couldn't get the majority they were seeking. Mm. And then the board of directors who had facilitated the plan were voted off the board. And Jack, what's the latest? Because I think there's been a statement from the existing directors this week after they were charged by the English Football League. Uh, Yeah, so back in August, the English Football League launched an investigation into this whole situation. Essentially, Morton House hadn't gone through the proper channels to go about trying to claim a majority in a football club. So they launched an investigation Mm. and this week they have charged the football club with a breach of the league rulings, essentially. Now, the club have come out and said none of the individuals currently sitting on the board have been charged. It's, you know, it's the individuals which have since been replaced. But it's still a worrying time for the club. I think some of the fans are fearing a points deduction as a result of it. The chairman has said that's unlikely, so hopefully that's the case. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of the club suffering at the hands of people who it probably never wanted involved in the first place. And you mentioned the club. Could you tell us a bit about some of the people you met and some of the fans? You know, what, what were they like? What were their characters? Yeah, I mean, I don't think parochial would be an unkind term. I think that's probably a, a term that they use for themselves. Suspicious of outsiders yeah. a little bit, but their suspicions certainly proved justified in this case. And, um, you know, as, as I said earlier, clubs like Rochdale, you, you don't get outsiders coming in as supporters. You don't get fans, you know, hanging on, on the coattails of success because there is no success. And these fans are all diehard fat supporters who have followed this club for their lives and they would, you know, they would do anything for it. Next up, we are going to speak to Kieran Maguire. He is a lecturer in football finance at the University of Liverpool. He's the author of The Price of Football, which is a book that a lot of football fans have read about the, the money side of the game. And he really follows some of these issues around ownership, around a lot of these lower league clubs not making a profit anymore, how that makes them vulnerable when ownership changes or when the taps for investment get turned off. Kieran, thank you very much for coming on our podcast. First of all, let me just ask, what was your reaction to reading Jack's story about Rochdale? I thought it was a fascinating piece of research. 
and analysis as to, to what has happened at Rochdale Association Football Club. I think it highlights the importance and, and the affection with which the club is held by many of the fans and the fears that they have for the future. And, and those fears are not alone, that those fears are expressed by fans of many clubs who love the history and the heritage and the shared experiences and memories that they have of attending football matches together. I've noticed on your Twitter that you often share the accounts of lower league football clubs. So you're obviously very plugged into this world of football finance, even in the lower leagues. How emblematic of what's going on in the lower leagues is this story or how unusual is it? In terms of new owners coming or trying to come into the clubs, normally the first that fans hear about it is when the the deal is signed, sealed and delivered. So I think credit has to be given to those Rochdale fans who, as soon as they they started to see uh, some of the signs that there could be a potential hostile takeover to the club, they organised themselves. So I think that sets Rochdale apart because of the structure of the ownership of the club, which is fairly unique as far as football is concerned. Most clubs are owned by one individual or perhaps a few individuals who have control with Rochdale. The the ownership is is spread amongst uh, far more people. But I think it is also indicative of an industry which doesn't make profits, does often rely on owners to not necessarily subsidise, but certainly to cover the losses on a regular basis. And that always comes with risk. So generally speaking, is it the case that most of these lower league teams are living beyond their means? They're not driving a profit every year? Certainly, uh, the profit is the exception rather than the norm. And, right. and even if you go as far as the Premier League, there are still many clubs who are losing substantial sums of money. So those losses can only be covered either by the players being sold by clubs. And if you're in League One or League Two, there's not many football players that are desirable from other clubs for large sums. So, so that tends to be trying to spot the diamonds in the playing talent. So therefore, it falls upon many owners and When I speak to owners of lower league clubs, they say what I tend to do at the start of the season is is identify how much loss I'm willing to bear and the club carries on on that basis, which is okay. But what happens if something happens to the owner's personal circumstances or what happens if the owner just reaches that point where they've had enough? And and, and we see that happening too often and, and clubs going into administration as a result. Why is it damaging to have these new owners come in? Well, if the new owners have a business plan, if the new owners want to create a legacy, want to ensure that the club is going to be sustainable on a long-term basis, then the new owners can be absolutely fantastic. Um, but trying to determine the motives of owners isn't easy necessarily for the people selling them the shares. And it's not easy for the for the administrators, the likes of the English Football League to determine. In the case of Rochdale, the prospective owners had no geographical or historical link to the club. And the purpose of their investment or their potential investment appeared to be on this is going to be a bit of fun and it gives us an opportunity to to enjoy ourselves at weekends which which is great you know everybody wants to enjoy themselves in mm. the game of football but were they planning for a a long term investment were they planning to leave behind a Rochdale football club which would be sustainable for many more years that that was far more uncertain and 
if you have an emotional investment in a football club, which is which is the the relationship that most fans have, you are looking for that legacy. You want to ensure that your children and your grandchildren will be able to go and watch the club. It doesn't matter whether the club is Rochdale or Manchester United or Barcelona. Um, football clubs do have a unique place in in history and heritage and culture, not just in uh, not just in this country, but in many countries as well. And you hope that the owners buy into those values. It would appear that the prospective owners of Rochdale didn't have that emotional investment. Mm. So would they have been looking for its long-term financial future and health? That that was uncertain. Mm. And how do fans know if a new owner will be a good owner? It varies from club to club. So if we take a look not too far away from Rochdale, we've got the town of Bury, mm. um, and and Bury were sold. Uh, just over three years ago to a, a new owner called Steve Dale. Um, he uh, immediately started making changes. Suppliers weren't being paid. Staff weren't being paid. Mm. He made some pronouncements which seemed very unusual. Mm. He refused to give to the football authorities any evidence that he had the financial resources to support the club either on a short-term or a long-term basis. And within a few months, Berry ended up being expelled from the EFL and the club has gone into administration. And what's been left behind is, is a tragedy because the fans have turned into factions. There's this hostility between the fan groups. There's clearly hostility towards Steve Dale, who doesn't still appear to think that he might have done anything wrong in the sense of his period of ownership of the club, which was was short and, and fairly brutal in, in, in terms of what the club eventually had again in the northwest we've got macclesfield mm. town football club which which ceased to exist a couple of years ago because the owner didn't appear to have a, a strategy so it's it's simple things such as communication engagement transparency all of these factors can be very quickly identified by fans and and you can you can start to draw your own conclusions as to the motives of the owner that's interesting. Danny, you need to tell Kieran who your lower league team is. Danny adopted a lower league team recently and she's going to explain why. They're called the Millers, so they're Rotherham. Um, <laughs> ah, yes, yes. <laughs> our, our readers are called the Millers, so Danny is now supporting Rotherham. <laughs> I think they did quite well, though. They were top of the League One table, weren't they? They're top of League One. I think they are in, uh, I think they're playing at Wembley in, in a couple of weeks in the in the Papa John's final as Danny, well. You so, so, Danny, you should go. Danny, you should go to the Papa John's <laughs> final. But crucially, how are their finances? Rotherham United Football Club, in my analysis, mm. I, I think they're one of the one of the, the stars of, of English football mm. because it's a club that doesn't attempt to live beyond its means. Mm. It has had promotion to the EFL Championship, which is the second tier of, of English football. And, and on a budget, the wage budget is less than half of most clubs and, and perhaps you know, a fifth of some of the clubs in that division. The approach taken by the Rochdale owners is, yes, we're going to do our best and, and yes, we're going to try to stay in this division. But what we're not going to do is to gamble with the club's future. So Danny's chosen well in terms of a financially robust team to follow. <laughs> yeah, up yes. the Millers, up the Millers. Up the Millers. All right, we'll see you at the Papa John's final, Kieran. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. 
That was Kieran Maguire. Danny, what did you make of all of that as a non-football fan? Um, yeah, I was able to keep up, which was um, which was good. That's the main thing. Okay, Danny, you joined the mill in April last year, but you actually joined on on shift after you graduated from your course. Yeah, we were in a like a really um, soulless yeah. co-work space, and then we got the keys to the the head office. You've had your first year at the mill. Yeah, it's been it's been a year. What's it been like? Yeah, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and when you joined, that was your first job in journalism. You'd done a little bit of marketing before that, is that right? Yeah, I'd spent up to, I think, close to two years in digital marketing. And then this was my very first job in journalism. Because when we first met in the Mills' first ever office in the uh, Metro Cafe in Chalton, you were training, you were doing your... NCTJ, which is the National College of Training of Journalists or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you were doing that and you had never done any journalism before. I think you'd written a few online blogs, hadn't you? Because I read a few of those before we met. Yeah, I think I'd done a few um, like first person features. But yeah, I didn't didn't know anything about journalism. But you'd written a couple of times for Aurelia magazine, which is a Man- Manchester-based yeah. good online magazine. And... I think I'd read something that you'd written about your family on there and I found it, yeah. found it really powerful and, and, and whatever. And I hadn't planned to have a trainee or an intern or whatever, but you wrote an email being like, here are five reasons why I should join or something. Yeah, I did a comprehensive uh, three bullet point list about why I was the best person for the role. Yeah, so then we met up. I think it was six months where you were a trainee and then you joined on staff. Yeah. So it's been a year. Are there any like particular like stories that, that stand out to you that you've worked on that you particularly like doing? Oh, I'd probably say when I interviewed Della Robinson. So Della was one of the sub-postmasters affected by the Horizon scandal. So Della lived out in Duckenfield. And it was just really eye-opening to sort of hear her first-hand account of, you know, how it had affected her. Um, and just really sort of her emotional resilience really shone through. And it was sort of just speaking to her, you, you wouldn't really know that something terrible had happened to her because she was so positive so upbeat and really sort of warm and welcoming so that was to me that was a really real privilege to be able to sit down and talk to her and share her story and I think one one thing that really stuck out to me about Della's story was you know other sub postmasters you know other people were shunned by the communities you know some workers very tragically you know died by suicide just because of the extreme emotional ramifications of what had happened but Della and her family continued to live in Duckenfield and actually you know she never told anyone about what had happened to her and when I went and talked to her you know we we met up in this pub garden and you know she said oh look you know I've got these friends here I've known them for ages Um, I'll I'll tell them you're a journalist and you've come to interview me about about what happened at the post office and they and they turned around and said oh was that was that you Della I had no idea that happened to you so that was one thing that really stuck out to me was you know Della continued to live on in her community and sort of tried to get on as best she could so that was probably what set her apart from other other sub postmasters who were affected by the scandal and is there a story that you've done that you kind of sometimes think oh I'd like to go back to that one or like I think that deserves maybe more reporting or we'd like we should go back into a podcast with them or something like that Annette Mackay. So Annette was formerly a, a Berry councillor. She's still sort of um, waiting to find out if her long lost sister was one of the the tomb babies. So the mother and baby home in in Galway Island. A few years ago, the garden was found to contain you know a, a huge quantity of human rem- remains. And Annette is still waiting. So it's been years and years since she she made the discovery that her mother had given birth in secret to um, her older sister. So I 
be really keen to follow up on Annette's journey and sort of find out whether she'll ever be able to have closure just because it's such a, a shocking and terrible, terrible story. Definitely. And a feature that you've been doing recently that's like become really popular is At Home With, which goes in our Thursday newsletter, where you normally just go to someone's home, you photograph them like on their sofa, you photograph like their book collection or something like nice thing about their living room or something. And this week you visited a man who's a sort of bit of a musical genius in the city, but probably not many people know his name. Yes. So I went and met Tim Williams, who is the artistic director of music ensemble Safa. So you know, no doubt you would have heard of Manchester Collective, but you know, you might not have heard of Safa. So Safa was founded in 1991, and Tim will actually be stepping down from his role later this year. They've got one final swan song. They've got sort of one one final concert with him in his role at the end of March. So that's something that you should definitely pop along to. Tim is sort of a percussionist. He's uh, musically trained. Um, his wife's a musician. Um, his two children are musicians. So he did tell me when I went to visit. Visit, visit him he, he kind of hoped they'd be sort of lawyers or doctors but they they decided to to pursue music and one thing that was really interesting um, when I met Tim was he taught himself how to play the cymbalum so the cymbalum is the national instrument of Hungary oh, wow. and there are only a handful of cymbalum players in the UK it weighs about half a ton and when you kind of look at it it, it looks a bit like a very fancy desk <laughs> but you sort of lift it up and it's sort of it's kind of a bit similar to in terms of like percussion to to the piano so you've got these kind of stretched stretched strings stretched wires and you kind of hit them with a stick and they make this really lovely noise so when I went to see him at his home he gave me a private performance of this really interesting instrument and I think we've got a clip of that haven't we Now, to round out this week's slightly unconventional episode in which there's no Daryl, there's no professionalism, there's actually no news, although the Rochdale stuff is is newsy, but really we've stuck to some pretty typical mill topics that aren't particularly newsy. The final one is about an English language class that Jack Delhanty went along to earlier mm-hmm. today. We're recording it on, on Wednesday. He went along earlier today. Danny, tell me about that. Yeah, so Jack went along to visit Mustard Tree, which is based in Ancoats, and he was able to That's sit... That's a homelessness charity. Yes, that is, sorry. And he was able to sit in on a an English class, um, specifically an English as a foreign language class, so where we've got sort of refugees and asylum seekers or sort of immigrant Mancunians who kind of all come together and they're taught how to speak English. So Jack was able to sort of sit in and see what they do and had a recorded a really lovely report from there. So I've just been to Mustard Tree, which is a homeless charity in Ancoats. I've been to one of their ESOL classes, which is English to speakers of other languages. So it's an English class specifically designed for people who are coming here from other countries, be they asylum seekers or refugees. And what's interesting about Mustard Tree is over the past few months they've seen a huge spike in attendance and it's a bit inexplicable they haven't really put their finger on what it is if you look at the numbers in august they were just having over 50 people in the month of august attending by february they had over 200 
a big factor in that is probably Manchester's intake of Afghan refugees in August. But also it's a lot to do with the way that Mustardry make their ESOL classes so accessible. So normally an ESOL program, you'd have to undergo some kind of screening process. You'd have to commit to a term time so maybe a four-week program which when you come to the country for the first time as a refugee or an asylum seeker your life can't really accommodate that kind of commitment and most prohibitively you'd have to pay for an ESOL class which if you're in a new country for the first time that's very difficult so the mustard tree classes are completely free completely non-committal people can bring babies they can bring toddlers oftentimes mustard tree will pay for someone's commute into the city so that they can attend they'll get a free lunch after it and they've seen a huge rise in attendance from that I sat in one of the English conversational classes and it kind of serves a dual purpose for Mustachery as a homeless charity because they'll kind of go around and they'll have access to these people they may not have had access to normally and they can ask them about the housing situation and from there they can kind of filter people out who may need help in other areas so there was one example a young guy from Syria who came to one of the ESOL classes and they were asking him how old he was and he couldn't answer and then they got another Arabic speaker to translate what he said and they actually found out that he'd been born in 2006 so he was a 16 year old in the country for the first time he wasn't in school and that's what one of the fundraisers at Mustard Tree told me was kind of the one of the many good things about it is that they can get access to these people and find new ways to help them and it was also just hugely encouraging to see people coming to Manchester coming to England with such alacrity and enthusiasm to learn the language so that they can start a new life here I think that's sort of a part of that story that people don't often see in the kind of asylum seeker and refugee stories people just so eager to learn so eager to start new lives and yeah it was it was really a privilege to watch that was a report from jack delhanty he's also working on a broader piece with some data scientists from the university of manchester who are collaborating with us on homelessness in greater manchester so that's coming up Let's finish off today's episode by recommending a few things. Danny, what's your recommendation for listeners? So on Friday, independent publisher Fly on the Wall Press will be doing a book launch at Blackwell's Bookshop, which is on um, just off Oxford Road. The new anthology is called Of Myths and Mothers, and it will be featuring five writers. And it looks it looks really, really good. Lovely. And Jack's still here. Uh, yep, on Tuesday evening, the mighty Rochdale are playing up at the Crown Oil Arena. So if you fancy heading up to lend them your support, they've got a crucial uh, run-in match against Carlisle United. So uh, so that's on Tuesday evening. Is this a relegation six-pointer to it's, adopt a football cliche? This is very much a relegation six-pointer. They're both sitting just above the relegation spaces at the minute. But if that uh, points deduction does come to fruition, they could need your support. And my recommendation is Manchester Writers for Ukraine, which is an evening of poetry, uh, stories, uh, performances, which is happening on Friday evening at the King's Arms in Salford. Um, All the proceeds that they earn from the event are going to go to the Disasters Emergency Committee, which is an appeal for humanitarian aid in Ukraine. And there are going to be writers there, including Sarah Butler, Michael Conley. And actually, there's going to be a writer there who you interviewed, Danny, Mm -hmm. um, Louise Valvine. So really encourage everyone to go along to that it's been organized by a mill member and i'm sure it'll be a great event thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the manchester weekly from the mill if you want to read more of our journalism 
do join us as a member at manchestermail.co.uk. It costs £7 a month, or it costs £1.35 a week if you pay for a year up front. We really appreciate the support of all our paying subscribers, and the more we get, the more journalism we can do, the kind of stories we've been talking about today. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd really love you to share it with a few friends on WhatsApp or, or on text or something, because we'd love to get our, our listenership keep growing. It's been growing every week, and, and we'd love that to continue. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you, you listen to us. Um, thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next week.